The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you transplant law, you bring stuff with it. And if you you look to environmental law and you say, this looks enough like the problems that we're seeing uh, with the use of AI systems, we can analogize the problems from AI systems to pollution, which a number of authors have done. And you say, okay, well then the solution should be, let's bring in environmental regulation. My point is you should also look to criticisms of environmental regulation, of uh, toxic chemical regulation, of other places where this sort of risk regulation has been used to try to figure out what goes wrong when people use it. So this idea of policy baggage is that there are things risk regulation is actually pretty bad at doing. And I happen to think that when you take what risk regulation is bad at doing and you cross it with the type of harms that AI regulation is trying to address, uh, which are often deontological, they're rights-based harms, then it raises some pretty significant concerns about whether this is in fact the right tool, or really I should flag, is in fact the right tool by itself. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast for April 20th, 2023. In the last few months, we've seen an explosion of new AI products, especially those built around large language models. And in response, we've also heard calls for far more aggressive government regulation. But what does it mean to regulate AI? Margot Kaminsky is an associate professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's just published a paper for Lawfare's ongoing digital social contract research paper series, in which she argues that the emerging law of artificial intelligence is converging around risk regulation. I spoke with Margot about what risk regulation means in the AI context and why she thinks that it has some serious drawbacks. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 20. Margot Kaminsky on regulating AI risks. So before we get into the excellent paper, I want to start by looking at a case example, and maybe we can use that to just preview some of the themes in your work. And the case example I want to think about is the explosion of uh, large language models um, that we've seen in the last few months. So this is for uh, listeners who have been successfully hiding under a rock. I envy you. These are things like uh, ChatGPT uh, and uh, the stuff coming out of Anthropic and Google Bard and Facebook's Lambda. I'm curious, you know, as we all realize the potentially world historical nature of these technologies um, and how quickly they are progressing, sometimes described as a double exponential, um, so sort of exponential going exponentially. What to you, especially in light of the, the themes in the paper, which we'll get to a little bit later, 
what to you is missing in the conversation around regulating these models? Or, or do you think we're in great shape to, uh, <laughs> to deal with our future robot overlords? If we were in great shape, I wouldn't have a job. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I've been watching the ways in which conversations around uh, artificial intelligence and decision making in the form of basically glorified search engines have been entering the conversation with a little bit of trepidation. I think that a lot of people are maybe focused heavily on the version of AI that we're seeing with a public interface. That is to say, you know, the chat GPT version of AI where you're able to enter in a request and have it perform for you. And people are not thinking so much about the backend use of AI in many different industries where they're not going to have any idea uh, that it's even there or being used against them. And they're only going to feel the consequences as a matter of major social impact on major life decisions without knowing whether those decisions have been made by an AI system um, or a human being. And why do I think we should care about this? Well, if you've ever spent any time playing around with these systems, you know that they can go wildly, excruciatingly, sometimes hysterically, funnily <laughs> wrong in you know what computer scientists call hallucinations. And when we see a, an AI system hallucinating, or that is to say, confidently stating a very wrong answer, when we see that when we're interacting with it as a user of it, it seems almost laughable uh, if you're an expert in an area and it spits out an answer that's comically wrong, or at least maybe reassuring in some interesting ways, but it shouldn't be reassuring, right? Uh, it shouldn't be reassuring that these systems fail. It shouldn't be reassuring that they reproduce biases in the data sets on which they're trained because they're being used in all sorts of ways that we're not currently seeing. This is only really the, the tip of the iceberg presenting itself as a problem of mass communications law when the use of it within many forms of social infrastructure should be pretty scary to people. So th this introduction went even better than, uh, than I thought. <laughs> so it's a perfect way to frame frame uh, uh, this deep dive in, into your paper that we're going to do right now. Before we talk about what you refer to as the emerging law of AI, I, I want to set the background. And in particular, I want to talk about what this law is replacing or supplementing. And you start the paper by observing that most legal analysis of AI so far has been centered on what you call its substitution effect. So just say a bit about what you mean by that and why, in your view, that's insufficient and therefore we need a, a new emerging law of AI. Oh my goodness. Well, I think um, actually ChatGPT provides a great hook for this as well. So you've seen the proliferation of conversations or really arguments about whether an AI system should be seen as a substitute for a human. From a legal perspective, that means asking things like, should it be held liable when it does things that are illegal? Uh, or should it be given rights? Um, and that may sound somewhat ridiculous, but uh, it actually has some pretty significant social consequences. So if we think about ChatGPT as a search engine, right, the substitution effect conversation is, do we afford in the U.S. context some form of free speech protection for the output uh, of these algorithms, right? Do we, is, is it protected by the First Amendment as speech? And then the, the sort of other side of that question is, if a uh, an AI actor like ChatGPT produces defamatory content, can ChatGPT be sued? Or really the corporation that has created ChatGPT or the programmers behind that, can they be sued? That is a, a way of framing artificial intelligence as basically a substitute for a human actor, uh, where you're asking, does it have rights? Can it be held liable? And that is actually not what the dominant approach to AI systems or to governing AI systems has been around the world. 
So what I'm hoping to do with this paper and, and related longer work in the first instance is descriptively to alert people to the fact that there is a really large body of soft law and in some cases harder law regulation that is emerging here that looks nothing like these conversations about rights and liability and really is focusing instead on an ex-ante, which means before the fact, systemic risk management approach to AI. It sounds incredibly unsexy. Um, it is, in fact, incredibly unsexy. We're talking about really detailed uh, regulatory approaches and regulatory design. But if you care about these systems and the impact on the world, you actually have to start wading through the stuff to figure out what's going on there and whether or not it's going to work. Look, un unsexy but deeply important is both Lawfare's motto and uh, let's be real, my motto too. So we're doing the best we can. Um, so you say that it's being replaced by risk regulation or that the emerging set of techniques around the world is is more in this risk regulation space. So why is that? You know, and hopefully you can just sort of describe what risk regulation is and, and what gap it's filling um, that these previous models have not been adequate to address. Sure. And I think I think that it's important context for this paper to understand that I'm actually not not entirely against this approach. I just think it's being done pretty badly. So to to explain what gap it's filling, you can think about just general conversations in regulatory theory about the benefits, the pros and cons of ex-ante or before-the-fact regulation versus ex-post liability. So if you have a system like an AI that uh, decides things in an opaque fa fashion that is hard to causally unpack, it's hard to figure out who caused what, when, and what connection that had to whatever harm the system produces. And you talk about huge information asymmetries between people impacted by the use of a system and the users of the system, typically big companies. Then you're talking about a set of you know, market failures and failures in, in information access that make liability after the fact really challenging. So the space that these approaches to regulation is try are trying to fill is this space of let's put the regulation on a large scale systemic level. Um, let's have it apply even if somebody doesn't have the capacity for a lawsuit or can't figure out whether they want to uh, to initiate a lawsuit. And let's have it happen across the board to these companies that are creating these risks at a systemic level and have them be the ones that are held responsible for before the fact risk mitigation to make sure that problems like, like bias or unfairness or error are being addressed and built into the systems. The systems are being tested. They're being potentially audited, uh, which means that they're going to be better, more correct systems. So it sounds really appealing, right? I mean, we, we don't want a uh, large-scale either corporate or governmental user of an AI system to go out there wielding an instrument, wielding a program that doesn't work very well or is racist or sexist. And so, you know, this default of let's think about this as risk regulation and make that actor responsible for fixing those problems has a lot of appeal. And, and to be clear, I mean, this is not something that has been just invented to deal with AI. I mean, this is basically in large ways how we deal with environmental regulation, regulation of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, I'm assuming that regulators are just looking at previous social problems and then just applying this approach to this new social problem of AI. Is that right? Absolutely. So uh, in a longer piece that's related to this paper, I talk about this as a natural transplant, which is actually not my term. It's a great term that came up in the international law literature. So a legal transplant is when a regulator in one country looks at another country and says, hey, I'm going to copy and paste that law. 
here, what I think we're really seeing is a natural transplant, which means that a regulator in one country is looking to another area of law, which in this case is environmental law, and saying, hey, this looks pretty good. Uh, Let's copy and paste this and use it for my problem, which kind of on the surface looks like it's a similar problem. So we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about the ways to which you're skeptical that this approach works in in AI. But but I do want to spend some time talking about the kind of the the three examples that you build your descriptive piece uh, around of this emerging risk regulation model. And that's what's happening in Singapore. That's what's happening in the EU and what's happening in the United States, specifically in NIST, the National Institutes for Standards and and Technology. Um, So can you just give an overview of what these three jurisdictions are doing and what the kind of common thread is, uh, such such as there is um, running through these uh, three different examples? Absolutely. And I should say there's just a host of other examples I can use too and that I've addressed elsewhere. So these really should be understood as examples, not as not as the, the only uh, data that's available. So the Singapore model and the NIST model are pretty good examples of a soft law or guidance version of this approach, uh, which is to say that they are not law in the books. They are not law enforced by regulators, although the Singapore model does have a relationship to Singaporean data protection law, which is interesting. And what they do effectively is task the users of AI with, I'm going to use the NIST language uh, because we're in the US and I think it's pretty straightforward, with identifying, mapping, measuring, and mitigating risks. So that means that if you're going to be building or using an AI system, uh, you have been tasked with this soft law guidance with trying to figure out what could potentially go wrong. You have to identify the types of risks, and those range from things like discrimination to error to uh, unfairness, which we'll get back to. And then once you've identified the risks, you need to try to quantify them, uh, measure how severe the risk is, usually ranging from moderately severe or non-problematic to highly severe or so problematic, you probably should shut the system down. And then you need to figure out how to mitigate it, which means you know do whatever it is that you can do, whether it's change your data set or audit or uh, build in some sort of programming safeguards or establish guardrails. So that the risk will be lower. And then if you've decided as a as the entity using AI that you've effectively mitigated your risk, you can go ahead and use it. I think that's the the key point about these regulatory approaches is that they're geared towards making AI better and usable, right? They're not geared towards particularly towards stopping the use of AI. And so there can be potential serious blind spots in trying to figure out uh, using this soft law self-governance approach uh, when a company might actually say this risk is so severe by itself that it's just not going to use the system at all. So you, you've mentioned this distinction between soft law and hard law a few times in the conversation, and I want to talk about it now. So can you just define what the difference is and sort of the advantages and disadvantages of a soft law or hard law approach? And, and also, I'm curious, I mean, is it how much of it is a binary? I mean, there's soft law and there's hard law, and how much of it is sort of semi-soft law? Like, you know, like cheese. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally a spectrum. Uh, I love cheese. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, totally a spectrum, you know, from Parmesan to, I don't know, Harbison, um, where softer law uh, typically, and again, a lot of this occurs, a lot of this conversation is in the international law space because so much of international law is soft law. Softer law typically is less likely to be enforced by a government regulator, might not even be written by the government by government actors, might be written by non-governmental organizations or associations coming together in multi-stakeholder systems. It also typically tends towards standards rather than strict rules. So that's one way in which law can be softer. And enforcement is a key portion of, of soft law, is whether the law is in any way something that can be enforced by the government. And again, this can really be run across the spectrum. You can have 
soft standards that are developed by a multi-stakeholder organization that's not affiliated directly with the government, that government then decides to incorporate as harder law and take on uh, and enforce. We haven't yet talked about the EU AI Act. I sort of cabined that one off, but that's a good example of some softer law elements of what otherwise would be understood to be top-down regulation and hard law. So on the other side of the cheese spectrum, on the Parmesan cheese side, uh, we have the the harder law approaches, which again, usually it depends on who is drafting them. Um, the more uh, written directly by a government actor, the more likely something's to be considered hard law the more it looks like rules rather than fuzzy standards and delegation to private sector organizations to decide what their standards are, the more it looks like hard law and the more enforced or and enforceable it is, um, the more it looks like hard law. So obviously this distinction between hard law and soft law is is one that goes across many regulatory domains and there's a huge literature about it and I don't want to get too derailed, but I do want to dig in just for a second. And, and and that's to sort of, you know, imagine someone who's hearing this distinction for the first time and whose response is, well, so, soft law, that just sounds like not law, right? That just sounds like a cop yeah. out. So, I mean, you know, kind of, I guess in the AI context, you know, wh- why, what reason do we have to think that, quote unquote, soft law of AI is actually going to do anything, which is, of course, kind of the whole point of law, however, you know, however, how, whatever form it takes. Yeah. So the the strongest argument for soft law is that it can effectively organize sectors or organize actors around a set of principles and can, and can serve as pre-law, I'd say there are two strong arguments. One of the two strong arguments is that soft law leads to hard law, right? It's like practice law. Um, and if you don't really have a sense of what you're going to write as hard law in the space, or if you're concerned about the pace of technological development, which might be the case here, then you turn to soft law as something that, that lets you coalesce around a certain set of norms um, and values, and then somewhere down the line, you might move on to harder law later. And 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 just to sort of follow up, and, and it, would you say that that's sort of what's happened in this EU case that people have been thinking about this, and then the EU decided, okay, we're going to take some of these soft law elements and actually implement them into a slightly harder form. From the time that I've spent looking at EU law, which is you know only in the past five or six years. Uh, I would say that it's doing a slightly different thing. It's kind of doing the second thing that soft law does. The second thing that soft law does is to figure out the right balance between what tasks are afforded to regulators and what tasks are afforded to the regulated entities. And both the general data protection regulation in the EU and the draft EU AI Act are doing this complicated dance around trying to have a centralized regulator that that is providing necessary oversight and backstopping of principles, while also respecting that most of the expertise is in the private sector. And so trying to delegate through softer aspects of the law, some of these these you know tenser and maybe more technocratic debates uh, over what exactly the goals of regulation are. So one interesting point that you make in in the paper, among many interesting points, is, is that you're seeing again the, fundamentally the same paradigm be popping up over and over again, right? This risk regulation paradigm, uh, and you give right your examples: the U.S., Singapore, the EU. Obviously, the language is quite different across uh, all of these areas, but really, it's all getting at the same thing. And so the kind of follow-up question to that is, if we're seeing coalescing around the same regulatory paradigm, should we also expect to see cooperation between jurisdictions, right? So it's not just that everyone is kind of doing the same thing, but with their own language and in their own way, but actually the EU and Singapore and the US and whoever else are going to sort of join hands and do that. And would that even be the best way of doing it? I mean, is this an area where we want, actually, at least at this moment, 
uh, a lot of sort of in- interjurisdictional uh, coordination and cooperation. I think that the regulatory environment is so completely different in the EU and the US that any form of sort of cooperation and coordination over this right now is I don't want to say accidental, but it's it's not it's not being coordinated. So the EU is trying very much to be the first mover in this space and to be the jurisdiction in which it tries to use law to bake values into technology ex ante, as opposed to trying to deal with harms ex post, which historically for the US in data privacy and data protection regulation has been the case that the the mantra of the US is, let's see the problems when they show up uh, and we'll regulate them later. So anti-precautionary. And we've all seen how well that works. So, so I think the EU is trying to be the first mover. The US is adopting a lighter touch approach in part because I think it's extraordinarily hard to get consensus on a federal level of over, over how to move over these things. We have seen some federal proposals and some state proposals and also some, um, I didn't talk about this in the paper as much, but some proposals that are uh, that have been enacted that are embedded in recently enacted state data privacy laws, where you see a lot more of this sort of, I would call it rather than coordination, regulatory contagion. Uh, so an aspect of the Brussels effect, which is to say both de facto and de jure, you can see companies that are know that they're going to be regulated in Europe or already are regulated in Europe, basically saying, I want to impose those same regulatory costs on my, on my cohorts that are only existing in the United States and saying, we're going to be the good actors and show up and say, we should regulate AI or we should regulate uh, and protect data privacy because we already have to do this in the EU. So we might as well make sure that you know, California or Washington or Colorado or Virginia enact the same things in the U.S. So I guess my my view on all of this, Alan, is is less that regulators and lawmakers are these like unified entities that actually think through this stuff, uh, and more that there's this diverse set of of political actors ranging ranging from you know corporations to entrepreneurial individuals who are are really trying to copy and paste this stuff and quickly. Like ChatGPT, we're all just stochastic parrots trying to figure out what we're going to do <laughs> to do five seconds from now. Title of the podcast right now is Stochastic Parrots and Cheese. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Done. Done. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. 
And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Okay, so so we've laid out the sort of descriptive part of the piece where you describe this emerging model of risk regulation. Let, let's let's talk now about the, the, the normative part or uh, the sort of more critical part of the piece where, where you identify sort of three broad categories of drawbacks uh, to this model. And, and they are, so the first is, and we'll go through each of them. The first is what you call policy baggage. The second is inadequate risk regulation. Uh, and the third is... Um, what you call a uh, techno-correctionism, the idea, and you mentioned this a little bit before, that, that uh, these AI systems can, in fact, be used responsibly when perhaps they can't. And to give, to give credit where credit is due, that term is actually not mine. That's uh, Jessica Eaglin's term. But I completely wholeheartedly buy onto it and, and use it in this piece. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so let's start with the first. 
What is policy baggage? So the idea here, this goes back to the conversation that we were having about transplanting law, um, whether it's transplanting law from, from other jurisdictions or transplanting law from other fields like environmental law. One of the big points of my work in this space, both in this piece and in longer work, is that when you transplant law, you bring stuff with it. And if you unthinkingly transplant law, um, I guess unthinking is a little too harsh of a term. If you you look to environmental law and you say, this looks enough like the problems that we're seeing uh, with the use of AI systems, we can analogize the problems from AI systems to pollution, which a number of authors have done. And you say, okay, well, then the solution should be, let's bring in environmental regulation. My point is you should also look to criticisms of environmental regulation, of uh, toxic chemical regulation, of other places where this sort of risk regulation has been used to try to figure out what goes wrong when people use it. So this idea of policy baggage is that there are things risk regulation is actually pretty bad at doing. And I happen to think that when you take what risk regulation is bad at doing and you cross it with the type of harms that AI regulation is trying to address, uh, which are often deontological, they're rights-based harms, then it raises some pretty significant concerns about whether this is in fact the right tool, or really I should flag, is in fact the right tool by itself. Say more. What what are the sorts of things that environmental regulation, for example, is is not good at? And why is that a particular concern in the AI context? With due apologies to my environmental law colleagues who know way more about this than I do, I'd say that my digging in the literature on both environmental law and toxic chemical regulation uh, uncovered is that risk regulation tends to have limitations when it comes to admitting its own failings, when it comes to quantifying things that are really hard to quantify, and then claiming that the quantification is a real science or real math. So, so this is like the when, when agencies assign a, a dollar amount to a statistical life, yes. and then they walk around as if that's some sort of objective, and we all agree to that you know, number. Absolutely. And we've seen this play out, um, just to give the, the example or the, the illustration of this in the AI context as well, we've seen this play out in the fairness, accountability, transparency community that talks about the use of artificial intelligence systems or algorithms in the debates about fairness. Right. I'm going to make this really concrete for a second, or really vague for a second, uh, appropriately. If you write a law that that tells a company, I want you to map, measure, mitigate the risks to fairness of an AI system, we just both shrugged. Right? What is that? <laughs> and that's what a lot of these these approaches are doing. Right? They're saying you company or you government entity try to figure out what is meant by fairness, how to measure it without any contesting voices, right? So without a lawyer there to tell you, I disagree with the way you've defined fairness or without the voices of an impacted community uh, to say, actually, what you're saying is unfairness we think is fair. And and so when you have this uncontested, generalized, you know, almost deontological harm, that's really ill-suited to risk regulation because it turns out what risk regulation is bad at doing is having a sense of, of humility about quantifying things that are probably not, strictly speaking, quantifiable or brute facts. And so I, I assume, though, that the solution is not to get rid of risk regulation. It's just that, you know, it's just to have a, a, a escape valve such that you can sort of pop out of risk regulation and into some other way of managing harms, you know, when you do hit those hard to quantify deontological harms, and you've decided, you know what, this is not something cost benefit analysis can deal with, we're just going to have to kind of shut it down in a more direct way. 
Yeah, I think I think where my mind is still open, and I haven't yet. I mean, I've been playing with this for a couple of years now, um, but I haven't yet fully figured out my feelings or thoughts on this. Is whether this form of risk regulation is something that can be fixed if you make it. Look, we've talked about the uh, briefly forecast of the other parts of the paper. If you make it into better risk regulation, if you provided avenues for impacted stakeholders to get involved, for example, or for there to be contested voices at the table, uh, if you you know allocated these complicated policy decisions. You see this in some of the risk regulation literature, right? You see, um, uh, I think it's Wendy Wagner saying, okay, we shouldn't just trust the, in her case, the agency to come up with the definition of of a particular level of risk tolerance for a toxic chemical, that should be something that we say, this is a policy decision, right? This goes to the people or this goes to the people's representatives. And right now what's happening with AI risk regulation is that the stuff's not going to the people, it's just going to the companies. And so I I am open-minded or really undecided about whether there are ways to add in more regulatory tools to make that better and to fix it versus, or you know, we designed the system, I proposed this in the past, we designed it to be complementary, like you said, where you bump out of risk regulation when you're in an area where we're really dealing with individual rights. Like elsewhere, I've talked about the necessity of having a right to contest AI decisions. The White House Bill of Bill of Rights, AI rights, proposes a right, a right for individuals to challenge AI decisions about them. Maybe that's part of the right answer, right? But I have to say, spending more time in the risk regulation literature and coming through this these series of papers and projects, I'm a little bit more skeptical of of how we could in fact fix this and make this better. So let's assume that we have some risk regulation and we have scoped it reasonably well so that at least the things that risk regulation can in principle regulate, we are we are regulating. We're not trying to overclaim. We now get to the second concern that you raise in the paper, which is well, we might still do an inadequate job of regulating those risks. And, and so I'd like to hear from you, you know, again, just what are some examples of that? And, and also, why do you think that the concern is about insufficient regulation rather than too much regulation? I mean, I, I think you can look across lots of the American economy and society and see plenty of insufficient regulation, but also plenty of overregulation. And, and you know, you don't have to be a kind of you know, right of center libertarian to think that, right? There's plenty of critiques from the left about how difficult it has become in America to advance on you know, ambitious you know, policy projects. Uh, and so I'm sort of curious whether you think that there's a, a space to be worried about overregulation in addition to underregulation. Yeah, I think my stance on this is that the US has for so long with technology taken the anti precautionary approach that anything, something, anything uh, is better than where we're at right now. I'd also say, you know, from the time that I've spent in the EU, I think I'm somewhat converted to the idea that it's possible to regulate the tech sector in ways that don't break the tech sector nor break the technology. Uh, and I'm also drawing a little bit on the the sort of privacy by design literature uh, and everything by design literature that suggests that the most effective way, this is when one way I do subscribe to the risk regulation approach, the most effective way to regulate technology is um, to have values built into it as it's being constructed rather than to try to paste them on after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let me let me ask you about the EU question, because this does raise something that I've I can sort of wanted to find a, a place to ask in this conversation. And, and that is whether we can look at the EU and really conclude that they're doing a good job. And, and the, the argument that you hear some times, and I think I'm somewhat sympathetic to this, is that, look, the EU is doing all of this in good faith, but they are free riding in quite a large way, because fundamentally, the vast majority of technological advances do not occur in the EU, they occur in the United States, right? Or if they don't occur in the United States, they occur over in Asia. And what the EU is doing is it gets all these technological advances, because it 
doesn't have, frankly, a commanding tech industry that it, that it can rely on, in part because it overregulates. Then it regulates those advances. And so that's why it's able to get away, f- a, a, away with this. And that, you know, if you're you know, thinking about the U.S.'s perspective, in particular, let's say, if you're also concerned about peer competition with uh, China and, and its very aggressive move on tech, you know, the EU approach is quite sort of unsatisfactory because they're, uh, to put it a different way, they're, they're not internalizing the costs of their highly regulatory uh, apparatus. So I'm going to defer to historians of uh, computing. And one person I'll flag who I think has been working on this is Meg Jones at Georgetown uh, to say, I'm not sure that that picture, well, that picture I think may on the surface look true when we look at recent tech companies. I'm not that sure that that picture actually historically is accurate with respect to developments in the computing industry. You know, I think that the the question for me that's a little bit more interesting well, I'll give you the EU way of framing what you just said uh, and then get to what I think is actually the real problem with European regulations. So I think that the response would be the US has been ignoring externalities throughout the the recent, you know, past 30-year development of the let's call it the data processing and computing and output industry. Combine that with some intermediary in there and then we've got all the terms. It's been ignoring externalities. Those externalities uh, have hit the ground in the United States in some really serious ways. And they've also influenced uh, what's been happening on the ground in many other countries around the world. And so, you know, the U.S. has been, in fact, subsidizing these industries by ignoring the externalities rather than the EU free riding off of it and then trying to regulate it. That's, I think, the difference in perspective. Where I think that the, the regulatory question really gets interesting is that because of this hard law, soft law mix approach in the EU, so much of the success of these regulations actually, like whether they they are just, you know, hand waving on the books that says uh, we're regulating, we're taking care of the externalities, we care about human rights, or whether they're actually effective, so much of it depends on how much enforcement is happening. And there's been pretty disappointing amounts of enforcement, uh, at least when you look at the at the GDPR. So the the capacity that the European Union might have, you know, you, you can see it basically it being the wrong term because these are a bunch of different regulatory bodies. But you can see the different regulatory bodies in the European Union taking a lighter touch approach in practice when it comes to enforcement than it might look like when you look at the heaviness of the regulation on paper. And why do you think that is? Is it it's just a resource issue? Some of it, I think, is uh, resource constraints. Some of it, I do think, is still this this concern about being deemed business unfriendly. And so, you know, again, my my analysis here is is limited to what's on paper. Uh, it's not it's not about the enforcement aspects. And I think that's where that's where the sort of you know putting e- the EU up there in its little shiny aura and halo doesn't really do justice to to what's happening. There's there is um, well established privacy law literature on this about privacy on the books versus on the ground that suggests in practice pretty significant convergence between US regulation and EU regulation based on this kind of regulatory forbearance or enforcement forbearance that takes place at the EU. So uh, let's now move to the sort of third critique and and this is I think the most fundamental one in a sense and uh yeah, this is the idea again that you you borrow from from Jessica Eaglin that there, there's something kind of rotten at the whole core of risk regulation because there it assumes a kind of techno correctionist perspective, and, and so unpack that. You know, why? What is your concern, and um, why shouldn't we try to correct the technology? Yeah, so I think that much of the sort of high minded attempts to deal with particularly unfairness, bias, and racism in AI systems. What they have tried to do is to correct 
unfairness, bias, and racism in AI systems. And that's a wonderful motivation. So start start by sort of lauding that, right? Better to have systems that are not racist than systems that are racist. The problem is, uh, as Eaglin points out, you know, she's looking in the criminal law space, but I th- I in this piece extend it to looking at regulation of private sector algorithms as well. The problem is that when you take that approach and you say, all right, let's fix it, let's make it better, you don't ask the fundamental first order question of should we be using this here at all? So her example is in the criminal law context. She talks about risk assessment algorithms, and she says this is actually an embedded policy choice when you decide that you're going to use a computer instead of a person or a computer in conjunction with a person who's ill-equipped to assess the computer's output and whether it's good or bad, namely the judge. When you do that, you're taking a, a collective view towards outcomes of cases and outcomes of sentencing instead of an individually oriented view of outcomes and sentencing. And we need to be having, according to Eagland, conversations about whether that's in fact the right policy choice to be making that shift from uh, individual to collective. So I give another example in the paper where I talk about facial recognition. And facial recognition gets touted often as being you know, the sort of most prominently uh, problematic version of artificially intelligent systems having built-in biases. We have the example coming out of MIT of an AI uh, facial recognition system that was significantly more accurate at assessing and uh, identifying white male faces than black female faces because it was trained on a database that was filled with white male faces, namely the engineers in MIT. And so the techno-correctionist approach to that is to say, all right, let's make it better. Let's make it more accurate. What that neglects to do is to, and this is sticking with me particularly because I just came through U.S. Customs recently, but what it neglects to do is to ask, you know, what are the other problems, right? What are the problems, what would be the problems of having a highly accurate system? And, and if you're in privacy law, you know, you say, well, the problems with a highly accurate facial recognition system deployed everywhere uh, is that you potentially have harms to democracy and harms to protesters and uh, harms to basically the development of the self in trying to go do things in your daily life and not be tracked all the time, see the Supreme Court's recent jurisprudence on, uh, on GPS technology. So I think that's the, the techno-correctionist criticism is not to say put out bad AI systems. It's to say, we need to be having regulation and at least policy conversations about whether to use AI systems at all, uh, which is not what the NIST framework looks like or what the Singapore framework really looks like at all. And so I just want to make sure that we're sort of clear on what the argument here is, because just as I take the the techno-correctionist critique is not saying you should use bad AI systems. It's also not saying you should never use AI systems. It may be open to a use of an AI system in a particular case, but what it's trying to push back against is the tendency to focus all your energy on technical improvements, because the concern yes. is you're going to put all this time in technical improvements, and then you're going to feel really good about those technical improvements, and you'll want to deploy the system, but a better AI system might actually be worse overall if it does a bad thing even better. Right? It's kind of a, it's almost it's almost like a version of the uh, alignment problem that you hear a lot in in the you know, uh, AI ethics, um, but sort of a- applied more sort of con- concretely. Right? You're 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 making the best paperclip maximizer, uh, but uh, maybe maximizing paperclips. You need isn't, it. Yeah, <laughs> who, who needs it? You don't know, you don't want to yeah. maximize paperclips actually. Right. And I think um, I also want to here to cite to some of the literature on legal managerialism. 
And the fact that there's there's something going on here, which has to do again with that second role of soft law, right? The delegation role of soft law, where government delegates some of these decisions to the private sector or regulated other regulated entities uh, because it, you know, ostensibly has better expertise. Well, what the private sector gets really good at doing is taking a regulatory attempt and then you know, capturing it, maybe not from a, a place of, of uh, really being bad actors, but, you know, you, you have your uh, uh, privacy, chief privacy officer, you have your team of, of product people who are concerned with privacy. They all talk to the engineers. Ultimately, you're in a public company that ultimately needs to make money for its shareholders. Well, you've checked all the boxes, right? You've been through all the assessments, you've done all your risk mitigation, um, and you're still producing, a let's say, a harmful paperclip production <laughs> uh, entity, uh, even though you think that you've run through everything that it is you're supposed to be doing. Is there a good framework for asking that second order question? I mean, not to, you know, maybe this is the next paper you write, but um, it, it does seem to me that this this question of when do you want to use well-functioning AI, um, which is kind of a version of when do you want to automate something, is itself quite interesting. But I, I don't have a good sense of how to think through that problem, except kind of in a very impressionistic and ad hoc way, which of course is, is not super useful when you're trying to deploy it across a million policy areas. Right. I wish I had an answer for it. I think that when, again, we haven't talked in any any level of detail about the EU AI Act, but if you look at the, the draft of the EU AI Act, there's an attempt to do this because the act actually does ban certain systems. And that attempt, which has been criticized across the board um, from people who are pro-regulation and anti-regulation looks really piecemeal and uh, Swiss cheesy. (laughs) I kind of come back to our cheese conversation. And uh, it's fairly hard to to draw principal distinctions between what gets banned and what gets regulated. So I wish I had an answer. All I have as an answer right now is to say the one attempt we have at doing this so far is being widely criticized and maybe hasn't fully been thought through. Well, I, I think it's a safe bet that AI is going to uh, be a big deal in the future. So uh, I'm sure there'll be many opportunities to have you back to make more fabulous uh, cheese-related metaphors uh, about these uh, these policy problems. It's a really great paper. Thank you for writing it. Highly, highly recommend uh, folks check it out. Uh, so Margot, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Alan. I really appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our subscribers. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Please check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.